Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about role-playing games, tabletop war games, and board games. I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he, him. Yay, and my name's Ed. My pronouns are they and them, but considering changing it to two and hot. Yes, because it is warm. If you can hear my air conditioner, I'm sorry, but I might die if I turn it off. Yeah, it's not a great time to be in a climate. I feel like a, I feel like an Atreides from Caladan who has just been suddenly dumped onto Arrakis. And, and you don't know no how to put suit. on that still suit? No, I don't. Yeah, because only one person knows how to put it on correctly the first time. Yep. And I'd mess it up, and us. then I would die. Yeah, I'd, I'd be like, uh, can someone check my still suit? Because the like YouTube video I watched trying to show me how it worked did not explain these straps. And then you immediately get murdered for the heresy of thinking machines. Yeah, I'm sorry. They've never watched YouTube because there's no thinking machines involved there. I don't know what the Dune equivalent of YouTube would be. Probably whatever, like, video projector Paul was watching stuff on in the movie. Yeah, they clearly have projector systems. They're just not networked. Is one of the key elements of the Dune series and the Dune universe is they don't have networked technology, like, at all. The best they've got is radio. Because people have to show up and, like, talk to each other. If, we, if little, we've learned anything, destroy your social media and play D&D. Yeah, uh, get off your social media and go conquer Arrakis. But, speaking of space and traveling through space and Dune, I guess, today we're talking about Spelljammer. This is going to be Spelljammer Part 1. Because, uh, well, there's a new book coming out in a couple of weeks for 5th edition Spelljammer. And once we get our hands on it, we'll do a Spelljammer Part 2 where we specifically get into what Spelljammer looks like in 5th edition. Right now, we're talking about 2nd and 3rd edition Spelljammer. Mostly 2nd. They did Spelljammer in 3rd edition? They had some Spelljammer-related stuff. Some of the races and monsters and stuff from Spelljammer showed up even if they didn't specifically make a book called Spelljammer. I was not aware of that. Uh, the GIF were a race in several of the monster manuals. I remember seeing the GIF in the 2E monster manual. Yep. Uh, the They were playable in Spelljammer. And also, like, the Astral Dreadnought showed up in 3rd edition. And that's a classic Spelljammer monster. And it's going to be one again in 5th edition. Terrifying things. But before we get into that, we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game... Uh, we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner, which happens at the end of the podcast. We also have a segment on this podcast called The Weekend Hobby, which happens right now. Yay! I'll go first. It's actually been two weeks since we recorded a podcast. I have had many D&D games. In one of them, the party defeated the uh, black dragon guardian of the jungle city that they were investigating slash, uh, well, mostly sneaking into and then trying to not get killed. But they fought off the black dragon. They descended into the sanctum beneath the great temple there. They found a door with a 
very scary warning on it that was based off the warnings for nuclear waste repositories. They entered into the depths of that. They had a conversation with the Guardian system there where they learned the truth of what was buried beneath the city. It was an ancient demon that was bound in giant crystals. Um, and they learned that the demon and the chunk of crystal containing some of its magical power from the city were stolen by a House Caneth expedition and taken back to Sharn and Sire, and that something must have happened to the one in Sire because it's leaking and that's what caused the Mornland. This is why you seal your waste. They did! And they put it in this sanctum with a big warning sign on the front that said, this is not a place of honor. Um, Do it better. They did a pretty good job. There was a dragon guarding it. We should have like, dragons guarding all of our nuclear waste. I mean, you just tell them that that's part of their horde and they're good to go, right? Yeah, just put some lizards down there. They'll eventually mutate. Yeah, but they mutate into Godzilla and then go out and start wrecking shit with radioactive firebread. But maybe Godzilla would eat the radioactive waste. I don't know what Godzilla eats. Fish, I believe. If we're going by the 1999 American movie, lots of fish. Also, don't go by the 1999 American movie. It's just garbage. Um, in some versions, he eats radiation, so that's better? That's the one we need. Yeah, but then he also spews it when he breathes his breath. It, it, it's not the best thing. It's like the, the flying crowbar of kaiju. Yeah, the XK Pluto shit. Um, but... They defeated that. They learned the information from the Guardian. They headed back to Sharn, where they're going to have to confront House Caneth with this information and sort of figure out who, what their standing is, what their plans are. Um, they have There are four shards containing the magical power of the demon that they essentially need to destroy, contain, do something with in order to weaken the primary one, which is in the Mornland and is still the shard containing the body, and then they're going to have to go there and do a multi-stage boss fight that involves going inside the crystal. Fun. And I've got crazy plans for what each of the four um, shards that they have to deal with have around them. One of them's going to be in a, like, druid-protected area. One of them is going to be beneath the um, Silver Flame Church. One of them is going to be in a Dwarven Bank Vault. And yeah. they'll And there are going to be various bad guys trying to get them. It'll be fun. Uh, the other group is in the process of finding their um, the brother of one of the characters. And they found some information saying that that they were had like crashed their ship in a major lake. They went to the lake. They found that it was being covered by some sort of strange arcane storm. They, you know, talked to some people. They talked to some uh, researchers trying to figure out what was going on. The researchers tried to like 
pull down some of the magic out of the storm so that they could fly into it and get to the weather control towers that were probably causing this. Um, the They accidentally pulled a lightning elemental out of the storm and they had to fight that. Oops. Um, and then they flew into the storm, found the like central weather control tower, and fought the Warforged terrorists who were manipulating it. Um, which led to the party doing the, like, what do you mean a 20 doesn't hit? <laughs> as they dealt with the Warforged armor artificer who was just as tough as some of their players. So, uh, yeah. Good times for that. Um, then they traveled out into the lake in search of the wreckage or the, whatever it happened to the crashed ship. They found a small little island. They found some ancient ruins on the island. They had fun with portals, briefly. Um, portals fought, are always fun. They fought the guardians, uh, which were like overgrown stone golems. Um, and then determined that the ruins were actually like a malfunctioning planar portal of some sort. Uh, the artificer managed to like jury rig up a small version of the portal that would let them transfer to the uh, wherever where like the messages were coming from, and they did, and ended up on the astral plane, with <clears throat> amongst the wreckage of the like crashed ship, because apparently, the portal had been like triggering at certain like lunar conjunctions, and had sucked the brother's ship, like skyship, in through one of those conjunctions. Um, Good times. And so they reunited. And now they're trying to get their portal started so that they can get back out. While a juvenile astral kraken approaches. It's gonna be crazy. Yeah, boy. And pretty fun. Uh, that's been my D&D games. I've played a little bit of board games, mostly Azul and Codenames, because it was just with family, and I didn't have anything fancy. Um... How about you, Ed? What's your weekend hobby been? Oh, boy. It's been kind of hit or miss uh, between the heat and work just being an absolute pain in my ass. Um, had another advanced squad squad leader game scheduled and then had to cancel it because it is the service of the sun here in my office, even with the air conditioner running. Um, won my first game of Go. So I'm now up to 23Q instead of 25 but it was against an absolute beginner so i don't know how much glory is in there uh let's see it's been too hot for any 3d printing so brought my printer inside and i've been doing some maintenance on it i was getting weird results where basically there would be kind of like a hollowed out section in the middle of everything and everything around the outside was normal and there was a spot on the FEP film where it had gotten dented and kind of clouded. And so I think the lasers couldn't quite get through that cloudy spot and it was just causing problems. So I've got some stuff to refurbish the printer and we'll see how that goes once the temperature finally goes down. I had a couple of subscriptions to some printing uh, 3D artists that expired, and so I spent yesterday downloading about 40 gigs of STL files so that I don't lose access to those as of midnight. Um, 
did a little bit of work on the Lannisters. They're still coming along. That's pretty much about it. All right. It's, it, it's been hot. Yeah, I can understand not doing stuff because it's 100 degrees out and not every house in Oregon has air conditioning or air conditioning that's good. Yeah, I have I have my little rolly air conditioner unit and we're trying to get it to like at least cool down the sleeping areas, but my office is the only spot where we can put it. So it makes my office somewhat nice and cool. Not so much the rest of the house, but even after being in here for, you know, a little while, uh, it still gets warm. So I'm painting in small bursts. So that's the weekend hobby dealt with. Let's get on to the main topic. Spelljammer. Jam it up. So some history. After a long sequence of classic fantasy settings, in 1989, TSR decided to do something fresh and a bit crazy for their next big second edition D&D setting. Space! Woo! Spelljammer introduced fantasy astrophysics. With multiple planets, magical ships able to fly between worlds, and a whole bunch of crazy new races, monsters, and lore. Spelljammer is technically not really its own setting, but rather a connection between all of the existing ones. With a heavy, sort of like steampunk, science fantasy, Age of Sail vibe for it. And like we mentioned, for 5th edition, Spelljammer has been revived with books coming out August 16th. And we'll do a part 2 once those are out and that, you know, once we've had a chance to read those. It seems like they're reviving a lot of the classic stuff but changing it pretty extensively to make it fit a little better in the cosmology of fifth edition uh we'll know once we get our hands on the books obviously so the question of course is what is a spell jammer and the answer is a spell jammer is two things first of all there is the spell jammer which is a massive like mile wide self-aware manta ray shaped ship that flies between worlds and has a city on its back uh, this is some sort of strange magical life form of unknown origin and is believed by many to be the first thing that like flew between worlds um in the setting secondly Aliens. a spell jammer is any ship that travels between worlds using the uh crystal spheres and the phlogiston, the flow that exists beyond them in wild space. Um, Spelljammers are magical ships powered by something called a Spelljammer helm, which is not a helmet, but like a helmsman seat. Uh, usually it's some sort of ornate magical throne Although it varies a little from type to type, uh, there are some that have, like, instruments built so that bards can use them. There are some that have just, like, magical attachments. There are certain varieties that, like, suck the life force out of the people in them. Um, it depends on who builds them. Most were built by a race of giants known as the Arcane, who are sort of blue-skinned, tall, skinny dudes who 
mostly just act as merchants and sell space traveling equipment. They're they're kind of neutral. I think we should retcon them into uh, gray aliens. I don't know what they're going to be like in 5th edition, but they were a classic element of the 2nd edition setting is that they've got a race called the Arcane that are these like 18 feet, 12 to 18 feet tall and blue skin and, you know, they they just exist to sell you Spelljammer helms and ships. Or, you know, kind of what else they sound like the neutral planet. They are a bit of the neutral planet, although no one knows where their homeworld is. So, uh, yeah, they're kind of a little mysterious. Um, the cosmology of the Spelljammer setting that you are going to fly these ships and helm them through is interesting. Um, it's based on the Aristotelian cosmology of crystal spheres. Each like existing setting, whether it be the Forgotten Realms setting or Dragonlance or Greyhawk or whatever else, exists within a crystal sphere um, of the like sun and all the planets and moons that you are kind of visible in the solar system. And then the constellations are on this crystal sphere um, that you would see from the planets. And then outside of the crystal spheres is wild space, which is a infinite fog of swirling colors, sort of like a nebula kind of thing, nebula looking mess, um, filled with phlogiston, which is a substance that sort of allows ships to travel between them and provides light. Although it does not provide gravity or air, the ships have to do that themselves. That's a, another function of the helms is sort of providing a sustainable living space. Although there's other equipment that can help with that. And the Phlogiston has rivers of flows that travel between the various crystal spheres, allowing for transit between them at reasonable speeds. Um, again, like sailing ship speeds rather than, like, aircraft speeds. Arg, it's going to take us a mighty... Six months to cross this sea. Yeah, if you're going very far between things, six months. But stuff like a couple of weeks to a couple of days if things are close together. Is what we need hypersleep for. Yeah. Um, or just casting, uh, I don't know. I'm sure there are spells that do that. Cast sleep on your crew, only to realize that there's one elf crew member and he just has to be awake for the rest of the journey. He's the one who casts sleep. That works. Yeah, because he doesn't mind. He's going to live 800 years anyways. Um, so this provides a sort of endless expanse of stuff to, do, to have stories in. Because you can set your story in and around the crystal spheres with the worlds that you already exist. Or you can kind of be more space flight. In the realms within the Crystal Spheres, they're full of asteroids and planets and other strange locations. Um, many of the planets are like spherical, round worlds, the kind of thing you might expect. But there are also a number of disk worlds, or just like flat Earths, essentially. That where, you know, if you fall off the edge, you die. I knew I was right about the flat earth. 
Take that, science. Well, I don't think Earth is one of the flat ones. Uh, there's certainly some flat worlds. Um, so, depending on where your ship goes, you can find yourself, you know, orbiting a planet and its moons, or orbiting a disk and its moons, or something in else entirely different. Um, I'm sure if you wanted, you could throw in a Modron world that's a cube. Mm-hmm. Um, or a world that's a dodecahedron. With giant numbers carved into each face. Oh no! What happens when it rolls? It's at the it's at the exact center of the universe. That would be that would be kind of interesting. A crystal sphere at the exact center of the universe, filled with giant platonic solids, each of which has uh, numbers inscribed on the surfaces. Um. Note to self, adding that to my next Spelljammer campaign. Hooray! Oh, and some, like, crazy cult that worships them. Yes. Uh, the cult of the... Oh. Maybe we'll do something with gods playing dice. The cult of numbers. Yes. Um, essentially, the crystal spheres and the wild space between allows people to travel between them. But what people travel between them? Well, there's all sorts. Uh, there are entire elven kingdoms that have, you know, discovered space travel and make quite good use of it. There's an elven, like, imperial elven navy that uh, is sort of the British navy equivalent. You know, they're the forces of law and order that zip around blowing stuff up. <coughs> Eldar. I'd, I'd say they're, since it's a, got a very Age of Sail feel, I'd, I'd say they're the Space British for this. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Not the Space British. Yeah, the Space British. Um, they they fought a war against the goblins and, uh, what are they, they called them the Unhumans? Um, against goblins, orcs, hobgoblins, and the like thousands of years ago that uh, wiped out a whole bunch of people. Um, and involved... Honestly, as an orcs player, I can get behind space goblins. Yeah. Uh, it also involved the elves blowing up a planet. Bro. Um, and was responsible for a lot of crazy, like, magic tech and arcane weapons and stuff that it kind of lost and would be a great plot point for adventurers finding one. Finding some ancient ship left over from the wars thousands of years ago. Um, you also have Mind Flayers. Mind Flayers love to travel around the stars. And in fact, the Mind Flayer ships, the Nautiloids, are one of the classic Spelljammer ships. Essentially, it's a Nautilus shell with like a front deck sticking out on top of the like tentacles from the Nautilus. And inside the shell is the, like, living quarters for the Mind Flayers and their slaves. Gotta get them brains. Yeah, the Nautiloids are dope. Uh, you also had a number of ships that were sort of humans and elves and normal races uh, that are based on, a little bit on, like, sea creatures. Uh, the One of the most classics being the Hammerhead class, uh, which is kind of like a ship with a hammerhead shark thing coming out of the front. Um, 
and is, you know, good for combat and trade, and also is good at ramming, as you might expect. Um, ramming speed! There were the Dragon-class ships, which are sort of Chinese-inspired, where they've got, like, uh, many stepped decks on them, and, uh, you know, they're sort of, they look a little like Chinese junks. Um, and there are a whole bunch of others. There, there are many, many spell jammers of different types. And you can kind of just add new ones because you make whatever crazy ship you want and you're like, haha, it's a spell jammer ship. Uh, the big thing is that they are kind of based on a certain tonnage because each helm has a ton tonnage rating and you can't move a ship that's too heavy unless uh, w with a spell jamming helm and how heavy your ship is affects its handling the original second edition rules had like tactical ship combat elements for nice. traveling around and like fighting ship to ship beyond just uh boarding actions or what have you see i wasn't crazy to get a bunch of miniature spaceships no you were not and if we play a, they just don't look like sailing ships if we play an in-person spell jammer campaign we'll have to use those ignore that it looks like the colonial marine ships from alien well i would say we just dig out the um spanish main was it Oh, yeah, those would make good spell jammer Yeah, we just dig those out and maybe bash up some nautiloids and use those. That's my suggestion. I mean, honestly, I've, I've seen enough uh, 3D printed ships being part of some nautical wargaming groups. I'm pretty sure I could print some uh, nice looking stuff for spell jammer. Yeah, that would be pretty great. Um, so you also had a variety of like spell jammer specific races. Um, the first and most prominent, perhaps, are the GIF, which are humanoid hippopotamus people, um, who use guns. I believe it's pronounced GIF. No, it's GIF. G-I-F-F. <laughs> GIF. And they will fight you over this, because they like to fight. Uh, they're sort of like seven foot tall hippopotamus men with guns. And mostly, like, blunderbuss, arcubus kind of guns. But they like guns. And they don't know where their home world is. They've been traveling for a long time, and they're all over the place. And, uh, yeah, they're just crazy fun dudes. Bro, how do you lose a whole planet? No one knows. It's a mystery. Um, you also have... The Autognomes, which are mechanical gnomes. Presumably, they were created by gnomes at some point to do stuff, and now they exist on their own. They're kind of proto-warforged in that they are constructs that are more similar to individuals and more playable than a standard golem. Um, but unlike the Warforged, they're not quite as sleek. They're a little more like Tin Man-esque. 
Um, oh wait, I think I I think I've seen these before. Yeah, they've been around, like I said, since second edition. But uh, it seems like they're going to be back in fifth as a player race. So small sized Warforged, essentially. Fine. Uh, we also have the Hadozi, which are an interesting one. They are essentially bat monkeys. Um, they're cool. described as being like simian humanoids with a like flap of skin that connects between their wrists and sides. So think monkeys with the ability to like spread their um, this flap of skin and kind of glide. It's like a flying squirrel. Like a flying squirrel, exactly. Flying squirrel monkeys. Um, cool. They're sort of humanoid. They're human-sized, <laughs> maybe a little shorter. And, uh, yeah, they're just cool monkey people that can glide. Um, and, again, they don't really have a home planet that they hang out at. Uh, they are well-suited to space and sailing, so they make up a lot of crews. They're not great... At, they're not big leaders, is the thing. So they, you know, they serve as sailing crews or large components of a sailing crew, and a lot of times they work for the elves. Or humans, or whoever. Um, they're just great crewmen. Um... Yeah, mercenary crews, and they work for the elves and stuff. They sided with the elves during the Unhuman War, so they did not get murdered. Uh, and Collaborators. A little, yeah. Uh, we also have some of the other classic races, like the Thrykeen. I remember those. Yeah, they're also in... Uh, they show up heavily in Dark Sun. Um... But they are a spelljammer race as well. They're a spacefaring insects. Uh, they're pretty dope. They're mantis people. I still contend that, that that we need to mash up Dark Sun and Spelljammer. Just that just sounds awesome. Well, yeah. I mean, theoretically, you you can land on Athes. if you're zipping around in Spelljammer. It's just going to be hard to take off again because of. The whole magic is bad thing that's going on there. See, there's your plot hook. Yes, um, and I've actually seen some content about people's spelljammer campaigns crashing on Athos and having to, like, grab all the magic items they can in order to get the hell off the planet. Get the hell off the post-apocalyptic setting of D&D. Um, but yeah, Thrykeen are a race that hang out um it looks like the new edition also has celestial elves as an elvish sub race which is an interesting setup um but i haven't looked too hard into the new races uh into the fifth edition stuff um there are also some other weird ones in older editions uh the dracon which are sort of centaur dragon born <laughs> but 
for the most part, the GIF, the Auto Gnomes, the Thrykeen, and uh, the Hadozi are the ones that have been popular and stuck around. And are the ones that, you know, people might be interested in. So let's talk about some of the cool locations of Spelljammer, because it's in space and there are lots of cool locations. For starters, we're going to go to the Forgotten Realms setting of with the planet of Toril, which is where, you know, Faerun and all the Forgotten Realms stuff happens. Which has the moon named Selene. Or Saloon? Whatever, I don't really care that much. Salune. And on that moon, there is a civilization of elves and humans, protected by a powerful, like, god-created illusion spell that makes it seem as though the moon is just an uninhabited wasteland. These humans and elves are, like, wealthy and cultured and have a huge, impressive society built up and, uh, you know, are big believers. They love art and music and food and are also incredibly paranoid that the people of the world below are going to find out about their existence and invade the moon. To the extent that they have, like, stockpiled weapons and are prepared to fight a guerrilla war and, like, unleash first-strike capabilities the instant they that someone down in the world below finds out about their existence. It's, uh, Lunar Switzerland, almost? <laughs> um, I find that really funny. The super paranoid moon people who don't realize that the world below has no idea they exist and is too busy with their own shit to do anything. But Cool, bro. Just keep doing your moon stuff. I'm going to be over here. Yeah, essentially. Um, there's also uh, the planet Hakatha, which is the farthest planet from the sun in the solar system of the Forgotten Realms. Um it's not really a planet, though. It's a disk. It, and a, a disk world that sort of points like uh, it's tidally locked, so the center of it points towards the sun all the time. Uh, it looks kind of like a giant wagon wheel. It's a big disk of water, like shallow oceans, with a giant mountain known as the Spindle right in the center that's uh, super tall, like as tall as the thing is wide. Um, the, it is in, it is populated almost entirely by beholders and people working for the beholders and they are constantly at war with each other. Uh, so you have in nation states of beholders or like little clumps of beholder warlords fighting each other over everything aside from a small group of them that are sort of neutral and operate docks at the base of the mountain. Um, there's also, the planet has two moons, one of which is a spherical body with a flammable atmosphere, and the other, <laughs> yes, um, it explodes if it comes into contact with oxygen. Don't- Nobody breathe. Don't go to that moon. Um, the other moon is a, a metal cylinder- that is basically a abandoned wizard's lab that is large and orbiting. Um, 
It's just... So I, I, I consider it kind of like a rendezvous with Rama sort of situation where it's this, like, giant metal cylinder and inside is a wizard's lab. Cool. Crazy, crazy shit, you know. I really like the notion of that. Um, you also have stuff like Dark Space, which is a fun one. It's a... It's its own crystal sphere that is long dead. Um, the sun there died some time ago. And so this crystal sphere, this entire solar system, is dominated by an ancient and powerful vampire. Because, you know, without a sun, nothing can fuck him up. Um, nice. So the place is cold and there's no naturally occurring life. Just hordes of undead roaming the great hunks of rock floating in the darkness. Undead planet. Yeah, whole. it's an yeah. undead solar system, essentially. Love it. Uh, ruled by an ancient and powerful vampire. Um, and it's quite possible that the vampire killed the sun. Impressive. Um, yeah, it's crazy shit. Super cool. Uh, there is a legendary planet inhabited only by Tarasks. Um, I don't remember what the name of that is, but don't land there. Although apparently, when viewed from orbit, the Tarasks are harmless. They're, they're just sort of passive, and they wander around the planet. Uh, any attempt to like remove them from the planet causes them to destroy you, because they're Tarasks. Do not anger the Tarasque. Yeah. Um, there are other ports of call. There is the Rock of Brawl, which is a classic um, asteroid that is uh, one of the major like cities of the Spelljammer setting. It's an asteroid. The top section, it used to be a pirate haven. And now the top section is like a massive free port city and on the bottom the governor's mansion and like the uh, private structures including the hangars for the like spelljammer fleet that defends the city. Um, yeah, it's a cool idea of just mile long, half mile thick, like potato shaped asteroid with a whole city built into the top half. Which is a cool place to go. Yeah, boy. There are any number of asteroid pirate havens and, uh, like, ancient lost ships and nebulas full of uh, wreckage and all sorts of uh, interesting planets and other places to visit. Um, various, like, lost citadels and that sort of thing. Um, a living star. That sounds terrifying. Plenty of crazy sci-fi fantasy nonsense for players and parties to do. And for, uh, to draw, um... So, 
think when it comes to sci-fi, uh, Spelljammer is more my jam compared to something like Starfinder, since I'm more of a yeah, fantasy nerd to... than a sci-fi nerd. And I think that's also why I prefer stuff like Star Wars to like Star Trek, because it's much more of that fantasy element rather than any kind of yeah, attempt I... at being like... I hard am sci-fi, a huge sci-fi nerd. Hard-ish sci-fi. And so when I played in a spell jam, or not spell jam, in a Starfinder campaign, um, certain things came up and I had to sort of explain to the person running it that that doesn't work. Uh, for starters, he had us on a planet and was like, all right, so this planet has a 12-hour day and a 16-hour night. And I'm like, um, does it have an what? incredible axle tilt? What? No, it's just normal, like a normal thing. There's no axle tilt. And I'm like, then how does it rotate so that you get 12 hours facing the sun and 16 hours facing away? He had to stop and think and rework his decisions on that. He also was like, and and the planet has a moon, and the pirates have yeah, built that's... a base on the moon that allows them to shoot down any aircraft. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. So is the moon tidally locked over, like, one section of the planet? Uh, like, is it always... Is it geostationary over one section of the planet, and we can use aircraft on the other side? Or is it, like, ro or is it like super close to the planet, so any aircraft trip longer than a couple of hours brings you into like visible from the moon he's like uh the second one you know having to work out actual astrophysics can yeah. be confusing that would be my problem with running any kind of like serious sci-fi campaign at least with like alien you could consider it maybe almost more of like a soft social science type of sci-fi since it's more about the absolutely horrible uh, CRT punk world that the people of Alien inhabit rather than any super scientific thing. Uh, I mean, look at the Alien. That thing I mean, is not scientific could, as hell. It you is, could sort of get into some monstrosity. <laughs> thoughts about what how the Alien functions and what it works. My interesting thing is the blood is acidic, which doesn't make sense but also, since the aliens don't eat, it's possible that their biology is more along the lines of rocket fuel, where they breathe in air and then sort of combust it with the blood that they have, and that's what powers them. And so they presumably don't actually have that long of lifespans. You know, they're born, they do their thing. I feel like I also saw that argument somewhere else, so you might not be that far off. And also the fact that they have, yeah. like... and given that we know they're biological weapons, backs. that kind of makes sense. Um, that if you... Essentially, yeah, you could dump them on a world, <laughs> like, let them murder everyone, because that's what they do. And then, as long as you, like show up once they've all died you show up you locate and destroy all the uh eggs that might contain face huggers you're good the problem of course is 
making sure you get all the eggs that might contain facehuggers, because if you miss one, it just repeats the cycle over again. Yeah, and you never will, because and you it's never a dumb will. idea. It's alien, that's the whole point, is that you never will. It's alien. That's the whole... Here's an alien story. Yep. Uh, the alien shows up, everybody um, dies, the cycle repeats. But yeah, you could throw in alien-based stuff into your uh, Spelljammer campaign quite easily. Um, in fact, I'm sure someone has written a, an adventure doing that. It would not surprise me in the slightest. I mean, it would be... It would be interesting to kind of mash together the alien RPG... And some of the mechanics with that, with some kind of spell jammer thing, because then you could do like some kind of, I don't know, displacer beast finds itself in your ship, and you're trying to. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna not die. Bring from up it. a thing here because we talked about this briefly when the episode about like weird D and D monsters. The displacer beast comes from a science fiction story, and in that old short science fiction story. What you described is basically what happens. Uh, the The story is called The Black ah, Destroyer and is about it. a black panther creature with tentacles that, and like psychic powers that tries to take over a human spaceship and leave the planet it's on because it murdered everything on that planet and now it wants to go to other worlds. Desire to see and murder the stars. A desire to see the stars. Um, and then the humans are... It gets out... It gets onto the human ship and, like, does a bunch of stuff, but it can't... It, it doesn't figure out the human, like, faster-than-light drive system correctly. So they just, like... It jumps off in its own ship, and they just turn around and come back and blow it up. Yeah, it, it's pretty... I'm in for a long... It, it's a wait. little... Having read the story, it's very pulp science fiction. So, uh, take that as you will. Cool. Um, no, that, it's that just... Does that mean there's a lot of racism? It, it's not racist, it's just everything is like, Ah, we fired our atomic rays at it, and that didn't stop it? Uh, that tends to be the kind of sci-fi yeah, I, I believe like, it's so. Available online for somewhere somewhere for free because it's a like old out of print like maybe in public domain at this point kind of story. We live in the internet. All information is free. What? No. Burn down your library. Your library is free. Don't burn it down. <laughs> A, a weird side tangent, but there are actual strains of anarchist thought that believe that libraries are too centralized of control of information. What about little free libraries? Libraries should not exist. Are those properly anarchist? Because um, those are much smaller, have no centralization or control whatsoever. Yeah, I guess... I guess uh, little libraries. They do tend to be more of like anarcho-libertarian little free libraries because they're usually full of garbage. Um, although I have found some that contain <laughs> actually useful, cool books. 
I found once found a little free library where someone had put the advanced reader copies of stuff that they had gotten. So I found books that weren't in print yet. Yeah, that was those were good. Score. Um, nice to get those. So yeah, Spelljammer. It's sci fantasy, science fantasy in the D and D universe. It contains a bunch of crazy stuff. Um, it's a cool space setting. If you want to do a science fiction plot and you want to do it in D&D, do it in Spelljammer. Jam some spells together. Jam your spells. So, we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. Ed, you're going to talk about a board game. Yay. Do you have friends? Would you like to lose them over the course of one evening? If so, then you should probably play Diplomacy. It's a kind of hybrid war game slash social negotiation game. Originally designed in 1954 and then published in 1959 by... Uh, nice What's name. the dude's name? Alan B. Calhammer. Um, as, far as, as far as I know, this is the only game he actually ever produced. Friendless he and alone the remainder of his of days uh, working as a postman. <laughs> um, I didn't look too much into his history, but I imagine with the popularity of diplomacy, he probably didn't too, do too bad for himself. And I mean, you get those post office benefits, so get some. Uh, the basis of the game is that it is uh, spring of 1901, shortly before the end of the period known as the Concert of Europe, which if we ever do a thing about World War I board games, we'll probably talk more about. But it was basically uh, the idea of all the nation states of Europe should cooperate together to prevent anything like the Napoleonic Wars Aww, from ever, ever I hadn't happening gotten again. that part in my history. Spoiler test. alert, it didn't work. Uh, <laughs> so each player and or team, uh, they take the place of one of the big empires from around that period. So you have the British, you have the French. You have the Ottomans, the Russians, the Austro-Hungarians, and the Italians. And the game plays out in three phases. The first phase is the negotiation phase where you go around to all of your allies and all of your enemies, and you basically decide where you want to move your armies and who you want to try and attack. And there's essentially no rules in this phase as far as who you can talk about, what you can talk about, what you can do. It is an absolute free-for-all. Um, and the big, I guess you could say, mechanical gimmick of the game is trying to find out when is the perfect point for the stab, which is the point where you turn up on the person who has just helped you overthrow the Ottomans and in turn declare war against them. So after the negotiation phase, everybody writes down their moves, and then you have the movement and battle phase where everybody's units move around the map and uh, depending on rules which I can't remember off the top of my head uh, certain units get destroyed and or have to retreat and then the attackers they gain that territory and then the last phase of the game is the uh, like equipping and refitting phase where if you have excess of supply you can create new units if you have a deficit you have to remove some from the map which is going to cause problems because you know you've just had to take 
uh, artillery units off of your frontier, which now means the Russians are going to start looking uh, longingly at your territory. And the game pretty much goes like that until somebody controls half the map, which is about 13 uh, supply centers, which are basically how you determine how much material you get. And the last player or last team standing wins. And yeah, there's a reason that the semi-official tagline for the game is destroying friendships since 1954. Because uh, it can get heated. <laughs> um, this is one kind of socially game that I do like because you can kind of turn it into a role-playing game, which can help with hurt feelings and or betrayals. You know, it's like, I didn't betray you. I I was Tsar Nicholas II. I just did what Tsar Nicholas would do. And at some point, my one of my uh, goals as a gamer is to throw basically like a dinner party, which is like a mock UN where people show up in like suits and international business wear. And we have little flags on the table of the old empires and play the game and try to not actually kill each other in real life. There's also uh, at least a couple different versions of online uh, adaptations. The one that I play is called uh, Conspiracy. You can get it at least on the Android I know. Um, and it's basically just correspondence uh, correspondence gaming since you just send messages back and forth and then when everybody's all done, you move on to the next phase. And also it was one of the first games uh, outside of chess to be played via correspondence which is pretty cool and, I don't know, it could probably be a whole mini-topic for another episode as it is. I mean, I assume we're ignoring Go played via correspondence? Did they play Go via correspondence? Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah, outside of games like Go or Chess, things like that, that, you know, you have definite turns... It was one of the first, at least, that seems to be acknowledged as being played by correspondents. I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to, to drift here. Yeah, if you've got friends yeah, and you uh, want to lose them at a dinner party, play Diplomacy. And see how long yeah. you can keep World War One going to. Um, at one of the most recent tournaments, uh, I think the game ended in, like, the year 1996, and it took them several months to finish this, this game. So it can go long if somebody just refuses to give up. Yeah, I mean it's the, I guess, something you can do when you're playing a gamist thing and not a simulationist thing Yeah, is that, you know, you don't have to worry about what morale is like or what the people think or what your industries are actually capable of. Yeah, there is absolutely no simulationist aspect to this at all. It's pure gameism. Um, are your units outnumbered? Good, you lose. That's about the depth of the military strategy. It's more focused on who you know, what they're willing to do, and your overall geopolitical situation on the board. Yeah. And that's Board Game Corner. Woo! As always, thank you for listening. Sorry we didn't get one out last week, but like we said, it was stupidly hot and we were busy. And as I said on Twitter, um, I was too busy selling my blood to buy fancy ghost stones. 
yeah, you, we need those fancy ghost stones. So uh, watch, subscribe, listen, hit that like button. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, we don't have that on here. Um, tell other people about the podcast. Uh, join a union. Um, support your local game store. Uh, Ed, your things. Uh, support support the queer kids and donate to True Colors United to make sure that everybody has homes. Donate to whichever abortion service and reproductive justice fund you can find. Uh, support the Ukrainians. Um, go give some money to either Signum Workshop or One Page Rules. They're the 3D print creators I had to unsubscribe from. So give them some money to make up for my lack of commitment. Uh, that's about all I got. Woo. And go Knowles. Go Knowles.